I want to teach you on the doctrine of the atonement. Okay? The doctrine of the atonement. Now, the doctrine of the atonement falls into the category of soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, okay? Uh, but particularly today, the doctrine of the atonement. So Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 10. 10 and 11. If you're there, say praise the Lord. <clears throat> And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood." And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Say with me, atonement. Let's pray. Father, we thank you right now for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The doctrine of the atonement. Last uh, Sunday, we completed our teaching on who Jesus is. Today, we will cover what Jesus did for us. It's the doctrine of the atonement, okay? Praise the Lord. Now, this doctrine of the atonement is what the Lord did for us. It is His work. Let's go to uh, John 17. John 17 and uh, verse 4. Sounds good, brother. Thank you. John 17 and verse 4. The atonement deals with the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to cover it so you'll understand. Okay. It is a work. It is the work that He was sent to do. John 17 verse 4. He said, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So this redemptive work of the Lord, we call it the finished work, okay, of Jesus Christ. The finished work of Jesus Christ has to do with his redemption for mankind. So it is a the work that he was sent to do. This is the very reason why God became a man, or God came in human flesh. That was the reason. He didn't come here just to be an example to us of how to live. God took on humanity so that He could save us and redeem us. So it is called a work. Jesus said in John 17 verse 4, He said, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, but He hadn't even been to the cross yet which is very interesting. He said he'd already finished it, but he hadn't been to the cross yet. So he's speaking from the realm of eternity there where things are already finished, they're already completed. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But it is a work of redemption. Now, in the book of Genesis, let's go over there and uh, we'll make reference to you uh, about... The work of creation is found, if you'll look in Genesis chapter 1, okay, and 2. What you have is, say with me, the work of creation. 
the work of creation. Now, seven days, six days God created, the seventh day God rested. So it would be seven days of creation. I think what I'll do is pull this out for you just for a moment so you can see this chart. Alright, seven days of creation or six days of creation and then God rested on the seventh day. Okay. Depicted on this map here, this chart. It's called the creative week. Now after God got through creating the heavens and the earth, going through these uh, days of creation, then on the seventh day He did what? He rested. Say He rested. When God made man on the sixth day, uh, the Bible then tells us after that creation, God rested. So Adam, when he was made alive by God, he literally entered into the rest of God. Okay? So Adam and Eve, before the fall, they were in the rest of God. Does that make sense? So we have God working in creation. You can call it the seven days of creation, but he rested on the seventh day. And so when Adam was created, he was already in the rest of God. He literally entered in to the rest of God. Now, in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, uh, if you get time to read that, you will see... Is everything okay? Okay. The third chapter is when man fell. When man fell into sin, sinned against God, rest ended. Because there can no, cannot be any rest if there's sin in the world. What you have is chaos. You have uh, the result of sin is death. So there was not rest. So what we have is the creative, the seven days of creation. Uh, God rested from all that He had made. Adam enters into that rest. But then in the third chapter, he falls into sin, and now there's no more rest. So what the Lord does is, if you look at Gen uh, again John 17, he had a work to do. So now, having completed his work of creation, because of the fall of man, God starts another work. And that's called the work of redemption. And we are in the uh, week of redemption right now. Okay? What year is it? 2014? Okay, so approximately 4,000 years from Adam to Jesus Christ. Add 2,014 years to that, 6,014 years approximately from Adam being created to the present time. So, when man fell in the garden then, God started a totally new work. It's called the work of the week of redemption. We're getting very close now to where God will begin the seventh millennium or the seventh day, which is a thousand years in length. Uh, it parallels the rest of the seventh day of creation. So you have seven days of creation. Man fell. When he fell, rest was gone. And God spending... You with me? Seven days of redemption to save man. The work of redemption is in process right now. And then we have the seventh millennium or the kingdom age, which is the rest of God. 
You see the parallel? So that's why Jesus said in John 17 and verse 4, He called it a work. He said, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Okay? So it is a work. Let's go over to John 5, 17. Everybody understand that? Okay. So he finished his work of creation, but because of the fall of man, then he had to begin a new work, and that is a work of redemption. John 5, 17. Jesus said this, But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. So now we see that God is working. Obviously, it's not creation work. That was finished. He rested in that. So when man fell, then God had to start working again. And he was working to save man. So when Jesus came into the world, he recognized that that was the work that he had to accomplish uh, in the world is to save man in order so that we could enter back into the rest of God. Do you understand that? Okay, let's go to Matthew 11. So Jesus gives us the invitation then in Matthew chapter 11 to enter back into the rest of God by way of redemption. Matthew 11 and 28. Jesus says, Come unto me all ye that what? Labor. It's connected to work. All ye that labor and are what? And are heavy laden. You are heavily, heavy burdened. And he says, and I will give you rest. So Jesus said, my father worketh hitherto and I work. And that work is not a work of creation. It's a work of recreation or regeneration so that man can enter back into the rest of God. Okay? Say praise the Lord. Now, this work that Jesus is doing is the work of the Father. Because He said the work that you sent me to do, it wasn't His own idea. This was the work of the Father that He came to accomplish while He was in this life. And that's why He was virgin born and came into this world. Okay? Now, what is the reason? Why do we need to... Uh, have atonement? Why do we need reconciliation with God? First of all, God is holy. Say, God is holy. Okay? He hates sin. He cannot tolerate sin. And therefore, because of that, when man sinned against God, then there has to be a price that is going to be paid in order for man to be reconciled to God. Because God hates sin. He's holy. That's why this has to take place. Number two, the reason is for divine law. Now, God gave man a free will. He gave all of us a free will, correct? But in giving us that free will, that means the ability to choose, God set boundaries around that free will. See, a lot of people have this idea, well, I can choose to do whatever I want to do. You can as long as it is in the boundaries of God's will. And so what the Lord did was He gave His law. And those laws were the boundaries. They were His will uh, for us to live. And so God gave us this free will, but this law tells us how to live. It's the boundaries that we must uh, live by. Okay? And then, uh, so God giving that law, without His law, 
we have order and chaos, disorder and chaos. Okay? You with me? Now, Adam and Eve had one law. Whenever God created them, put them in the Garden of Eden, they had one law, and it was a law of love and obedience. That was it. Okay? And they then they were tested by God to see if they would obey His Word. Very simple command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Very simple command. Okay? Will man pass that test and love God and obey God? Obviously, they did not. So the whole point is, even before the fall of man, there was law. Anybody that says we're no longer under the law, they don't understand. They may say that, but they don't understand what that means. Okay? Are you saying that we're no longer under the commands of God? Well, before man even fell into sin, there was law. Okay? And God gave that law to Adam and Eve, simple law of loving Him and obeying Him, they sinned against that one law, that boundary. So even though they had a free will or a choice to do, they still had to walk in the boundaries of God's Word and God's um, law. Now, they violated that law, and when they did that, they became a rebel against God. They became a sinner against God. Do you understand that? So, because of that, then man... Uh, needed to be reconciled back to God because he is a transgressor. And the Bible says sin is transgression against the law. Do you understand that? Okay. So Adam and Eve disobeyed that one law of God, and therefore now he's a rebel, he's a sinner, and uh, transgression against the law is the other reason why there must be atonement. We'll define atonement for you in just a moment. Okay, number three. Man's sin is the reason for the atonement. He is lawless. 1 John 3, 4. And Isaiah 59, 2 says that our sins separate us from God. So there's a separation. So we need to be reconciled back to God. Okay? Because we've been separated from God by our sin. Thoughts, words, and deeds. Now, men sin because they're sinners. You understand that? They sin because they're sinners. Uh, and for God not to judge that sin, that lawlessness, would mean that He is not willing to uphold His throne. Okay? What I'm saying is if God allowed man to continue in this lawless rebellion against Him, then His throne would be in jeopardy, His law would be in jeopardy, His righteousness would be in jeopardy. Does that make sense? He, what I'm saying is he just couldn't close his eyes to man's sin. Because number one, he's holy. Number two, he's given his law. And that law's been violated. If he doesn't do anything about it, it violates his throne. It violates his righteousness. It violates his holiness. I mean, can you imagine the throne of God being at jeopardy? It would be in jeopardy if he did not judge sin. Okay? Number four, the wrath of God. The wrath of God is what happens when God's holiness and man's sin collide. Okay? So because God is a holy God and he has a law and man transgressed that law and his rebellion against God, 
man's sin and God's law, when they collide, produce the wrath of God. It's not something that's going to happen. Uh, it is something that is already happening. You talk about the wrath of God, you think about that future eternal judgment of God. The wrath of God is upon the sinner every day. Okay? Now listen to me carefully. What makes man a sinner, okay, he sins because he's a sinner. And so, when man sins against God, the wrath of God abides on him every day. It's not something that's going to come. It is a part of God's nature. Okay? So when man is in sin and rebellion against God, the presence of the Lord comes down. And it always comes down in wrath. Okay, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But something changes. There's only one thing that can change it from wrath. So, a lot of times we want to focus on the acts of sin. You know, well, I did this or I didn't do that or whatever. Uh, and the, there are acts of sin. But what caused that action is that man is a sinner. He's in rebellion against God. So sin is just a, the acts of sin are just a manifestation of the fact that man is a sinner against God. Does that make sense to you? If it does, say praise the Lord. So because man is a sinner in violation against the law of God, then that brings the wrath of God upon him. Amen. Uh, so on and so forth. So I'll give you some scriptures here. Romans 4.15, Romans 1.18, Revelation 6, 16 through 18. Now, the good news is this, is that even though the sin in man and the law of God collide and bring the wrath of God upon uh, him, it is restrained. The wrath of God is restrained. Because if it wasn't restrained, immediate judgment would come on you as a sinner. So what happens is the holiness of God, His law, okay, is in place. The wrath of God comes on man because of his, of his sin against God. But because the other attributes in Jesus Christ or the other attributes that are in God are at work in Him, those, those, the wrath of God is restrained. That's good news. Amen? Do you, you follow what I'm trying to say? That God doesn't just immediately pour out His wrath on an individual. Even though His law and the sin of man are colliding, and that would bring the wrath of God on that person, the reason why His judgment doesn't come immediately is because of His mercy and His grace. See, God has some other attributes. Holiness is an attribute that causes His wrath to burn against sin. But He has grace and He has mercy also as attributes. And those attributes restrain His wrath from coming on the individual immediately. So a lot of times you may see situations in the world, very um, diabolical, very sinful things. You're saying, why doesn't God just come and just immediately judge that? Judge that nation or judge that person? It is because there's other attributes in Him uh, that is not just holiness and law. It's grace and mercy. So he, the grace and mercy of God restrain His wrath 
from immediate judgment in order. Listen carefully. Not because the person is getting away with anything. They're not getting away with an ungodly, sinful lifestyle. The reason why His judgment does not come upon the person immediately is because He's going to give them space to repent. Okay? So just because you or I don't see judgment on an individual or a nation that's in sin does not mean that it's not going to come. It's just not coming immediately because of the other attributes that are at work in God called mercy and grace. Now that is God's uh, op- a desire to save man, to bring them to repentance. It's not God saying, okay, it's alright, I'm going to close my eyes. It's God saying, I'm angry with that sin every day. I'm angry. God, The Bible says God is angry with the sinner every day. He's not happy with them. But the reason why He doesn't pour out His wrath, you know what I'm saying, and judge Him immediately is because He says, okay, my grace and mercy are at work. I'm going to give them an opportunity to repent. If they don't repent, then God will judge. Correct? We have a good example of this when Jonah went and preached to Nineveh in the Old Testament. The Ninevites were very ungodly. They were idolaters. They were enemies to the nation of Israel. If you could maybe receive it, sort of like Hamas today. In fact, they were, they were worse than Hamas today, the enemy of Israel. And uh, God tells Jonah to rise and go and preach to those ungodly Gentiles, those idol worshippers, very cruel, very cruel nation. And Jonah doesn't want to go and preach to them. Because number one, he's going to look like he's a traitor to his nation going there and preaching uh, an opportunity for this nation to be saved, right? He wanted God's judgment to fall on them right then and right there. But God says, no, there's another attribute that's at work in me. It's mercy and grace. I'm going to send you to preach to them. And if they'll repent, I won't judge them. And Jonah went and preached. He preached to the Ninevites, that nation of ungodly idolaters. And the nation repented. And it was over a hundred years. Over a hundred years before God finally judged Assyria. Because they repented. See what I'm saying? So Jonah is a perfect example of why the immediate judgment of God doesn't fall on a person or a nation because he wants them to repent. He wants them to be saved. So he gives them space to repent. Now, they repented, so there's no need for judgment. Correct? Alright? But when they turned away from God later on, over a hundred years later, judgment fell upon them. Okay? Say praise the Lord. So that, that's the way the wrath of God works. It's when the sin of man and the law of God collide that that produces the wrath of God, but it's not immediate. It is restrained because of His other attributes. Say so praise the Lord. Thank God it didn't. I didn't die before I got in the church. Amen. That's why it's a very dangerous thing for anybody to ever leave God. Because you leave God, you might think, well, I'm getting away with it and everything seems to be going okay with me. It's because of God's grace and mercy in your life trying to restore you, trying trying to save you. If not, His judgment could come right there and you'd be dead and I'd be dead. Okay? 
So that's how uh, His wrath works. And I'll give you some scriptures here. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11. Romans 2, 4. Revelation 2, 21. And then uh, uh, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. So God's not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want anybody to perish. But that all would come to repentance. So He gives man space to repent. That's why His immediate judgment does not fall upon the sinner. Now the word atonement means, the Hebrew word atonement, uh, our English word atonement, kafar, K-A-P-H-A-R, kafar, means to cover. That's what atonement means. It means to cover in the sense of covering man's sin. It also means to reconcile. So because man rebelled against God and man is in sin against God, he's in need of reconciliation. He's in need of being brought back together in a relationship with God. His sins have separated him from God. So that's what the atonement, the doctrine of the atonement is about, is God making a way by which sinful man who have broken his law can come back into a relationship with him. It's called atonement. God, How can God cover my sin? Uh, how can I be reconciled back to God? Okay, that's what the doctrine of the atonement means. Now that's what the Hebrew word means. But there is an old English word, okay, which we have atonement, at one month. So when I go back to the old English, at atonement, kafar means, Hebrew word means to cover or to reconcile. But the old English word that we have translating the Hebrew word atonement means at one month. So what we have here is God... There's a separation between God and man because of sin. So we're no longer in relationship with God. We're no longer in unity with God. So God brings the atonement in order to reconcile or make them one. Okay? To bring them back together in a reconciled way. So that's what atonement means. At one month. Okay? The old English word. Does that make sense? So the doctrine of the atonement then has to do with God's work in bringing us back to Himself. Now Leviticus chapter 16, we won't have time to look at it, but Leviticus 16, 16, uh, all the way through the book of Leviticus, the 16th chapter, we have the scapegoat. It's called the Day of Atonement. Say the Day of Atonement. Okay? The Day of Atonement was the day, it was a feast day, uh, once a year that the Jews celebrated and this feast day, the Day of Atonement, was when God, all of the uh, sins throughout the whole year, when the people brought the animal sacrifices to God, sin offerings, so on and so forth, um, confessed their sin, put their hands on the head of the animal, the animal died in their place. That was atonement, right? They've sinned against God, they've broken His law, we need an atonement, something to take care of that sin. So they confessed their sins, put their hands on the head of the animal, the animal slain in their place. Do you understand that? They did that all through the year. Okay? All year long. If you sinned against God all year long, you brought that sacrifice to the Lord for that sin. Okay? Now, so that sacrifice doesn't take away sin. 
Those animal sacrifices that they laid their hands on confessed their sin and that animal died in their place. That The blood of that animal did not take away the sin of the person in the Old Testament. But when they did that, when they confessed their sins over the head of that animal, that animal was going to die in their place as a substitute. They were looking to, by faith, Jesus Christ when He would come into the world and die for them and take away their sin. Okay? So don't think in the Old Testament when they were laying their hands on those animals and those animals became substitute for their sin that they thought the animal was taking their sin away. They knew better, even in the Old Testament, that those animals were only a picture of the one that would come and die for them. So they put their faith in Jesus Christ when they did that. Alright? So when they did that in the Old Testament, those animals died in their place. It simply covered their sin. It did not take their sin away. Atonement. It made atonement for their sin. It covered their sin temporarily. And they would do this all year long. Okay? At the end of the year, the, uh, the feast or the day of atonement, all of those sacrifices that were made throughout the year by the individuals of the nation, they're all brought together, if you can understand it this way, as IOUs, and they're all put, basically, let me just give it to you this way, in a pile. Okay? Because every sacrifice that was made, every confession of sin, every animal that died in their place was just an IOU. Okay? God said, I'll cover your sin until I come to pay the price and take away the sin. So just a temporary covering. So they brought their sacrifice and there was atonement, temporary covering. Brought another sacrifice, atonement, temporary covering for that sin. Then on the day of atonement, all the sins of the nation for the whole year were gathered and put on the scapegoats. Okay, One goat died, one goat was taken out in the wilderness into the, to no man's land where uh, it was let loose. It's a picture of the sins of the people being removed from the nation. Does that make sense? So all of the IOUs of the individuals throughout the year on the Day of Atonement were gathered. Now the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement represents the whole nation. And they did this every year. Okay? And they did this until Jesus Christ came. And when Jesus came, He fulfilled the scapegoat. He died as the first goat. And then He became the scapegoat at His resurrection, taking the sins, my sin and your sin, away. Does that make sense? So in the Old Testament, it was only atonement. It was temporary by the individual, then national on the Day of Atonement, and then when Jesus came, He removed them. So that's why they had a day called the Day of Atonement. Say amen? Okay. The, uh, it is the way back to God will reconcile to God. How then? By blood. Say by blood. Correct? Y'all believe that? Now, what we have to understand then is when those animals were slain in the Old Testament uh, and then for the nation on the Day of Atonement, they just covered the sin temporarily. That kept God's wrath from falling on them individually and nationally. Because remember, when the presence of God comes down, it always comes down in wrath against sin. Does that make sense? 
if a, if a person has sin in their life, God comes down. He don't come down in love. He doesn't come down in mercy. He doesn't come down in grace. That restrains His wrath. But remember, the presence of the Lord always comes down in wrath. On the Day of Atonement, because the blood of the, scape, of the, the goat and then the scapegoat took the sin away, because that blood was taken, sprinkled seven times before the ark and seven times on the ark. When God looked down on His throne, from His throne down, He saw that blood. And when He saw that blood, it turned into a mercy seat. Okay? So what happens then, the presence of God always comes down. If there's sin in my life, if there's sin in your life, the, the presence of God always comes down in wrath until it hits the blood. And when it hits the blood, it now is, instead of a, a, a throne of judgment, it becomes a throne of mercy. It's called the mercy seat. A lot of times when people come to church, they want to run out the front door and run down the street. Especially in here. Because God is here. I'm not talking about organized religion. I'm not talking about a social gathering. I'm talking about where the true church of Jesus Christ is, where His presence is. When the presence of God begins to move and there is sin in the life of an individual, they feel fear and trembling. And they don't understand what they're feeling. They're feeling the wrath of God upon their sin. They want to leave. They want to get up and go out the door because they're feeling the, the, the wrath of God upon that sin. But then when they confess that sin, they put it under the blood, get water baptized in Jesus' name and have those sins remitted. All of a sudden, they don't feel that wrath of God anymore. They feel His love and mercy. And the reason is that because now the blood's been applied to your life and because the blood's been applied to your life, when the wrath of God hits that... The blood paid the price. And so now we can feel the love of God. See? So you ever, you ever come to church and, you know, you just, you feel like, you feel fear, you know, and trembling, and God's presence is on you. Put it under the blood. If there's sin in your life, put it under the blood. Thoughts and words and deeds that sin against God. Confess them. And what's going to happen? All of a sudden, you're going to feel clean and good. Instead of feeling like running out of the church, you know, because God's wrath is on you, you're going to say, Lord, thank you. Because you need to remember every time, Brother Dice taught us this. He said every time the presence of God comes down, it always comes down on in wrath until it hits the blood. And when it hits the blood, it turns into a mercy seat. All right? Because that... That is the essential attribute of God. Holiness and law. If man is in rebellion, there's a collision that's taking place and that produces wrath. But the atonement is what covers the sin. That's what the word atonement means. Covers the sin. And so when the blood is there, the wrath of God, you understand, is perpetuated. That means He doesn't come down in fury and judgment. He's satisfied by the blood. Okay. Say praise God. So that was the purpose of the atonement. And they literally sprinkled the blood uh, before the ark and upon the ark seven times. So it was a complete, it's a picture, it's a type of the blood of Jesus making re reconciliation for the church. Now, um, we need to understand something here. 
that God is love. How many of y'all believe that? First John 4, 16. God is love. Two essential attributes of God. God is holy. That means He hates sin. And then God is love. That, that is His very nature. That's His very being. Those true essential attributes. Alright. Because He's holy, He has to judge sin by wrath. But because of His love, He will try to find a way to reconcile the sinner. Does that make sense? Whenever we look at the cross, let's go to John chapter 3. Some people want to focus on the love of God only. Uh, in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, y'all are very familiar with this passage. When you think about Jesus down on the cross, what, what major attribute do you think about? Do you think about God, the love of God? Do you think about, when you think about the cross, do you think about God, God's holiness? Well, they're both there. But they don't exclude the other. The cross is not just a manifestation of the love of God. The cross is a manifestation of the holiness of God. Okay? So John 3, let's look at it. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not in His Son into the world to condemn the world that the world through Him might be Saved. We know that verse, right? Very well. But look at verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall see life, but shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. So when John talks about the cross, he says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So he talks about the love of God being seen on the cross. But the same writer, the same apostle that talked about the love of God being manifested on the cross also preached that God is holy. He preached His wrath. You understand what I said? And some people say, well, John was the apostle of love. He was also the apostle of holiness. Okay? We're going to see this. The first thing that a person has to understand is that God is holy. He hates sin. That's the first thing that's revealed to us. by uh, When you look at Jesus in the Bible on that cross, the first thing that should come to your mind is not the love of God. The first thing that should come to your mind and my mind is, look, that man had to die. And there was a reason he had to die. And the reason he had to die was because God is holy and he hates sin. And the wrath of God fell upon Jesus on that cross. 
And once you see the holiness of God and the wrath of God coming upon Jesus, who became the sin offering for us, then you could go from there and see the love of God. Okay? So His holiness, you see, He never violated His holiness. Okay? Nor did He ever violate His love. He had to find a way. A holy God had to find a way to take care of sin because He hated sin as a holy God, but also because He was a God of love, He is going to make a way by which the sinner could be saved from His wrath. So when the apostles, like John, so-called apostle of love, preaches, he doesn't just preach about the love, he preaches God is a holy God. God is a God of wrath. Look at Jesus on the cross. If you don't believe in Him, the Bible says, the wrath of God abideth on Him. The same apostle. You see? Now, we cannot get lopsided. We can't violate the love of God. Amen. By just preaching the holiness and the wrath of God. We can't violate the holiness of God by preaching the love of God. Because they were never at odds with each other. His holiness and His love were never in conflict with each other. His holiness says uh, sin deserves to be judged. The wrath of God abideth on the sinner. His holiness remained intact. His love said, but I'm going to find a way to reconcile the sinner to myself. And I'm going to do it without violating my holiness or my love. Does that make sense? Okay, and the only way he could do that is if he came in the form of a man and died, paid the price, the penalty for sin, that satisfied his holiness and also his love. So now because the price has been paid, he made a way by which man could be atoned or reconciled back to God. Does that make sense? He never set one aside for the other. They always worked perfectly. Always perfect balance. His holiness and His love. So when you look at the cross, you don't just look at the love of God, you look at God's holiness and His wrath. That's the first thing you have to see. And then after you see that, that will cause you to run to Jesus Christ. It will cause you to run to the cross. See? And I think that's where a lot of New Testament preaching is missed. Because a lot of times people get and preach, all they do is preach about the love of God. Amen? That's good. Thank God for it. But you have to preach the holiness of God first and His wrath upon the sinner and that they need to repent. When you do that, that's when they'll come to the Lord. Because they know then that God is serious about sin. He doesn't compromise with sin. He doesn't tolerate it at all. He can't even look at it. His eyes are so pure. Amen? So when you preach that, then they will run to God because they know He's holy. And they will experience His mercy by being saved. Say amen. Okay? So first, it is a revelation of His holiness and then His love. John also speaks of the blood of the Lamb, right? Say the blood of the Lamb. 
But he doesn't just say the blood of the Lamb in the, in the book of Revelation. The same writer in the Gospel of John that talked about his love also talked about his holiness. In the book of Revelation, that same writer, John, talked about the blood of the Lamb. But then in Revelation chapter 6, he talked about the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of a Lamb? I can understand the wrath of God in the sense of Him in His holiness, but the Bible says the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. So John talks about the, the blood of the Lamb, but he also talks about the wrath of the Lamb, never disconnecting those two attributes. Always telling you He is... It's the wrath of the Lamb upon sin. But the blood of the Lamb is the way you can be saved. Does that make sense? Okay, say praise the Lord. You will see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. First, the emphasis is on His holiness. That God is holy. He's going to judge sin. And then after that revelation comes... The next revelation is God makes an atonement for the sinner by His love to come back to Him. Does that make sense? Okay, let me give you some Old Testament examples. In the Old Testament, first His holiness, burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verses five, verse 5, and then Exodus 3, 9 through 10. You with me? So when Moses is on the backside of the desert, where's that bush at? Where's that big burning bush? Maybe it's back there on the other chart. Okay, I think it is. Is it back there? The big burning bush? No, it's in the church, in the center of the church, right here. All right, forgive me. It takes me a little time to remember where these things are. See that little burning bush? That's showing you what's in the church. It happened back in Exodus chapter 3 with Moses in the Old Testament. Moses, when he saw that bush, that bush was on fire, but the bush did not catch on fire. It was the presence of God. It was the presence of I Am in that bush. And that bush was on fire. And what that burning bush is saying is, God is holy. In fact, God said to Moses, He said, take your shoes off your feet because you're standing on what? holy ground. So the first revelation that God gave in the burning bush was, I'm holy. Take your shoes off. And after God's holiness was revealed in that burning bush, then and only then did He reveal His plan to save Israel from Egypt. But it was first His holiness, the burning bush, and then the message of salvation came after that. Okay? In the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Remember, they're fixing to go into the promised land. They've got a lot of enemies they're going to be facing. The first thing that Joshua has to get a revelation of is, you know, we're fixing to go fight these enemies. Before God can help Joshua, before God can help the nation of Israel, Joshua has to get the revelation that God is holy. He sees the captain of the Lord of hosts there, 
And he says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? He gets a revelation that God is a God of judgment. And then after that revelation of judgment comes to him, do you understand that? Once he gets that understanding, now he's ready for God to help them in their battles. You understand what I'm saying to you, church? This might not seem like it's important, but it's very important for you. Because when you are dealing with situations in your life, the first thing you have to get is a revelation of the holiness of God, that God hates sin. He can't tolerate sin. And if you don't get that revelation about God, you cannot move to the next step, which is redemption. It's holiness first, and then it's redemption. Okay? With this, with Joshua. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, you will remember the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon the throne. And what is the revelation that he gets? Does he get a revelation that the one sitting on the throne is a God of love? Does he get a revelation that the one that's sitting on the throne is a God of mercy and grace? Is that the revelation that Isaiah got? No. Before that man was called into a prophetic office, he had to get a revelation that God is holy. Okay? You are not equipped to ever preach, ever, until you first get the revelation that God is holy. That He is separate from sin. He hates sin and cannot tolerate it. Okay? And so before Isaiah was called into his prophetic office... God gave him a revelation of his holiness. He saw the seraphim round about the throne and they, they said, He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. They didn't say, He's merciful. He's merciful. Merciful. He didn't say, He's gracious. He's gracious. He didn't, they didn't say that. They said, He's holy. He's holy. He's holy, Isaiah. He cannot tolerate sin. Now, now, Isaiah, you have the revelation of the holiness of God. Now go forth and preach to my people. Call them to repent. Revelation of the holiness of God. And so one of the seraphim fly with a tongue in his hand picks a, a, a coal of fire from the altar and takes it and puts it on the prophet's lips to purge him of his sin. The first thing the prophet said when he saw God in His holiness, he said, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he got the revelation of the holiness of God. And when he did, he said, I'm unclean and my people are unclean. The next revelation he got was God's ability to reconcile man. When that seraphim flies with a tongue in his hand and picks up that coal of fire out of that altar and puts it on his lips and says, now your iniquity is purged. He got the revelation that Jesus, God, can save the sinner. But he did not get that revelation of redemption until he first got the revelation of the holiness of God. Amen? Amen. Now, 
You are a witness. You are a minister. Everybody here is a minister. If you're a New Testament believer, it's not just your pastor that preaches. Every one of you, if you've been water baptized in Jesus' name and you're filled with the Holy Ghost, you are now equipped to go forth and evangelize the world. But you must have a revelation that God hates sin. You must have a revelation of His holiness before you can ever really start evangelizing. Because that's what will motivate you. Okay, listen to me carefully. If you, when you think about reaching the lost, if all you think about is, well, God is a God of love, that really is not going to motivate you too much to go out there and preach. But when you have a revelation that God is holy, and God is going to judge the sinner. He's going to pour out His wrath on those people. When you get the revelation of the holiness of God that will cause you to fall in your face as a dead man, and you know that God is going to judge the sinner because He can't stand to look at sin, His holiness rising up in you will cause you to go and evangelize the world because you know every person you see without Jesus Christ is going to die and go to hell. And until you get a revelation of the holiness of God, you will never evangelize even your neighbor. Before a pastor can ever preach, before a man or a woman is ever qualified to stand behind a pulpit and preach the Word of God to people, they must first get the revelation. He is holy. Then, Redemption, the plan of redemption follows. Okay, say praise the Lord. Lord. John in the New Testament, John already we already covered that. John talked about his love, Calvary, his love, but he talked about also he's a God of wrath. The same John that's called the Apostle of Love. Book of Revelation said, The blood of the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb. Okay? Do you understand that? So the cross then is not just a revelation of His love, it's first a revelation of His holiness. Paul, Romans 1, 18, Romans 2, 5, Romans 2, 8, Romans 4, 15, and Romans 5, 5. Paul, listen to me carefully. Paul preaches about the wrath of God long before he ever mentions even one time the love of God. You hear what your pastor's preaching to you this morning? The focus of people today, most of them because they live in compromise, they compromise holiness. They focus on the love of God first. And you hardly ever hear a message of judgment. Okay? That charismatic spirit we have to follow the New Testament example. And the New Testament example is before Paul ever even mentioned the love of God, he mentioned the wrath of God first. Because you have to... Praise the Lord. That's one reason why the law is still binding today. Uh, you preach the law of God. You're a sinner. You've broken God's law. You deserve His wrath. Look at it. You're living in sin. You're living in adultery. Whatever the sin is, you have violated God's law. You are a rebel against God. You need God's salvation. Amen. That law convicts the sinner. His holiness. And then, once they get convicted, now they're ready 
to hear about the love of God. Amen. Okay. So, God's not going to violate His holiness, but God desires to save man. The love of God is His desire to save man. That other attribute in Him. Okay? Praise God. And uh, the atonement is the way that God can save the sinner. In the atonement, in the work of the atonement, the Lord Jesus Christ experienced the holiness of God by taking my place on the cross and taking your place on the cross. God did not... Listen. God hit His own Son with His total wrath. Jesus Christ... The crucifixion, when you talk about the crucifixion of Jesus when He's hanging on the cross, the crucifixion is what man did to Him. The atonement is what God did through Him for us. When you see Jesus hanging on the cross, you see His agony, His suffering, I thirst, so on and so forth. He's experiencing all the bowls of wrath. He's experiencing what the sinner would experience in hell. He experienced that separation between God and man that the sinner feels and experiences. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That separation. I thirst. So on and so forth. The seven sayings of Jesus. Take time to read it. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, God's total wrath fell on Him for sin. And He died in the place of the sinner by being crucified by men. When He said, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? You need to understand this. He, he experienced physical death by the crucifixion. He experienced spiritual death, separation from God that sin brings. When He said, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? He said, I thirst. While he was hanging on the cross, he was experiencing hell. He, he didn't just experience physical pain and physical death. He experienced, if, if you understand what I'm saying, spiritual death, which is separation from God. That's what that means when he's hanging on the cross. And that's teaching you that God is holy. But he did it because he loved you and I and he wanted to make a way for us to be reconciled to him. So, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the holiness of God was satisfied. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the love of God was satisfied. Now, God, not violating His attribute of holiness or His attribute of love, they met at Calvary. They kissed at Calvary. Amen. Mercy rejoiced against judgment. But God still judged His own Son. He had to because He's holy. But because He loved you and me, He found a way whereby you and I could be reconciled back to God. Amen. And so they met and they kissed at the cross. Praise the Lord. In Jesus Christ.
It was a perfect balance. Isaiah 53, let's go there. Isaiah 53, 3 through 6. Hallelujah. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our sorrows and carried our, our, borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way and the Lord had laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That's, God is amazing. God knew that man would sin and that that sin would be in collision with His holiness and His law. And God knew that He had to deal with sin or He would jeopardize His throne. He would jeopardize His own righteousness. He would jeopardize His own holiness if He didn't. Disorder and chaos would remain if He didn't. But He made a way, it's called the atonement, to reconcile man back to himself by dying in our place. That's the doctrine of the atonement. Amen. So atonement is literally the suffering, Jesus' suffering and death on the cross to cover sin and reconcile man back to God. That was the love of God in manifestation. I thank God for that because I deserve hell. I deserve it. If you want to talk about what you deserve, people don't want to talk about, I, you know, I, I don't deserve this. Well, if you and I got what we deserved, it's the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Do you understand that? That's what His holiness says. I deserve the lake of fire. Today, I deserve the lake of fire. You deserve the lake of fire. Because we've sinned against God. We've rebelled against God. But Jesus took my place. He died in my place and died in your place so we could be reconciled back to God. That's good news. Amen. We don't live for the Lord because of what He's going to do, do for us financially. We don't, and He blesses us. We don't live for the Lord for those monetary reasons. We live for Jesus Christ because He died for me. He saved me from a burning hell. And I love Him. I love Him. All I can do is just love Him back because He loved me first. All I can do is love Him back and say, just simply say, Thank you, Lord for paying the price. And I'm not coming before you, Lord, and say, I deserve good. I'll come before you, Lord, and say, I deserve hell today. Thank you for taking my place so I could be saved. That's the atonement. The origin of the, the atonement where did it originate and how far back? It was ordained in eternity. Now I want you to think about that. It was foreknown 
by God. Do you understand what I'm about to say to you? Okay. Okay. I want you to just think for just a moment. I'm going to get a drink of water. Soak in what we've already taught you, but where did the atonement originate? It originated in God. And when? In eternity. Before God ever created the heavens and the earth, before He ever recreated one man, He knew that man was going to sin against, against Him. He knew it. Didn't catch Him by surprise. He didn't have a plan A. And then when man fell into sin, now he's got to come up with another plan. God knew before He ever created the heavens and the earth, before He ever made one man, He knew man was going to sin against Him. And so in eternity, before He ever created this world, He already had a plan to reconcile man back to Himself. Not plan B. You understand? He decreed to create the heavens and the earth. He decreed to create a man. He decreed to allow that man to sin. He didn't decree sin, but He decreed to allow that man to sin. He decreed in eternity that He would come in the form of man and die for man. He decreed that if man believes the gospel, that He would save him. He decreed that if a man doesn't believe the gospel, he would be lost. That was all in God before there was ever one one creation, one world created, or, or man ever created. It didn't catch him by surprise. Amen? Amen. It was in his, he had already decreed. He was in his counsel. He had already counseled with his own will. Now some, some teach, because they, they believe in three separate persons in the Godhead, they teach that way back in eternity that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost got together and they talked about how they were going to save man. Didn't happen. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 11, that, that God does everything after the counsel of His own will. And so, back in eternity... He counseled within Himself. He planted Himself in eternity how He would save man because He knew what I was going to do and what you were going to do. Amen. Didn't catch Him by surprise. Nothing catches God by surprise. So that's why we see Like First Peter one nineteen, let's go there. Statements that take us back into eternity before creation. Ephesians or First Peter one nineteen. You there? Are you looking? <laughs> okay. First Peter one nineteen and twenty talks about the blood of Jesus. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. So when we look at it, we have it foreshadowed in the earth. When the Lord slew that animal and clothed Adam and Eve with those skins, he's saying, It's the blood that maketh a covering for the soul. You need to be covered. 
Amen. Throughout the Old Testament, the patriarchs, the term patriarchs, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, patriarchs simply means the fathers. In the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so on and so forth, we have the atonement foreshadowed uh, in that history. Are you all with me? Now, it's foreshadowed in the earth, but when did it begin? In God. It manifested in time, right? When he killed the animals and clothed Adam and Eve, it was manifested in time, but when did it begin? God already had the plan in eternity. That means that there was an eternal covenant. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I study the Bible, I'm learning something new. I've heard about the everlasting covenant. I remember reading about the everlasting covenant or the eternal covenant. Didn't really understand it, to be honest with you. But the Bible talks about an everlasting covenant. You can read Hebrews 13 and verse 20. An everlasting covenant. This is a covenant God, that God made with Himself to redeem man. So out of that eternal covenant, His eternal plan to save man, do you understand? When you look at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on and so forth, and all these covenants that God made with man in the Old Testament, different covenants, all they are, those covenants really are coming out of the everlasting covenant. They're coming out of that eternal covenant that God made with Himself so that we can see foreshadowed in the earth what He would do when Jesus Christ came. Does that make sense? So we see the patriarchs. Covenants with them. is part of the everlasting covenant. Now, when we look at... I hope I'm not losing you. I'm kind of shifting a different direction here. But even when we look at corrupt Gentile nations, now Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? That's going to be connected to the nation of Israel. Do you understand that? Okay, the nation of Israel. But let me step away from that for just a moment. Even the corrupt Gentile nations that were in the world and are still in the world today we see a foreshadowing of the atonement. Are y'all here with me? Now, they don't get it right. It's corrupted. But the nations of the world today still recognize, they still have a revelation of their need, even though it's not pure. The way it will become pure is through the nation of Israel. God will show you, this is the right way. Okay? the covenants that He made with the fathers. But even the corrupt nations of the world, corrupt Gentile nations of the world, still know inwardly they need atonement. Let me give you some examples. The fact that a nation or people in a particular nation worships idols, has it ever dawned on you that when a person worships an idol, that's not pure? It's not pure. It's not right, is it? But when that person, that idolatry bows down and prays to that idol or worships that idol, you know what he's saying? I know there's a God. 
And I know I need God. Do you understand what I'm telling you? So even in the corrupt Gentile nations of the world, idolatry, their idolatry foreshadows the atonement. Because it's even in idolatry, it's telling you man knows he, there's a God and he knows he needs God. Calamities that come upon the nations of the world, even if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, what do they do? They're going to try to find a way to appease their gods. Because when the calamities come on their nations, they connect the calamities that are coming on their nation as a judgment from the gods. Now you and I know there's only one God. Paganism. When you say pagan, what are you saying pagan? Paganism is a worship of idols. People worshiping idols. Not the one true God. Paganism. Even pagans recognize these calamities that are happening to us right now is a result of the judgment of our what? Gods. It's corrupted. But it's foreshadowing. Man knows what he needs. They believed, look at this, even the corrupt nation of the world believe in God coming in the form of a man. That's why you have Greek mythology where you have demigods, half men, half God. Okay? Because they believed all the way back in the book of Genesis that there would be one that would come. And they believed that that one that would come would be God come in the flesh. They were wrong with their demigods, half man, half God. He was 100% God, 100% man. But I'm just saying, even in the corrupt Greek mythology, that tells you that man believed that God would become a man, come in the form of a man. Amen? Amen. Sacrifices by the corrupt Gentile nations to appease their gods by sacrifice. They'll take even their own children and offer their children as a sacrifice to their gods because they recognize they need a sacrifice. Corrupt. Priesthood in the corrupt nations, Gentile nations, the priesthood. The people recognize in these corrupt nations that they need to appease their gods, to satisfy their gods. So they'll bring a sacrifice to a corrupt priest. Okay? Give that priest money. Give that priest offerings. Give that priest sacrifices so that the priest, as a mediator, could intercede, listen, intercede to the gods on the behalf of the person. They believed that those priests in the corrupt nations knew the mysteries of the gods that they had the mind of the gods. So when you brought an offering to that priest, because he knew the mind of the gods, he would stand in your place and bring blessings upon you. Okay? If you didn't bring offerings to the priest, they would curse you. So even in the corrupt nations of the world, they knew that they needed a priest. Amen. Even though it was what? Corrupt. 
they believe in life after, the de after death as well. It's not just Christianity that teaches that and preaches that. Hinduism believes in that. Islam believes in that. The religions of the world believe in life and death, heaven and hell. Not just Christianity. It's corrupt. But they know from within. They know that judgment's going to come. You asked a Muslim, do you believe in the judgment to come? Yes. They'll tell you we believe in judgment. They'll tell you they believe in hell. Alright? They will tell you that the way to get out of hell is to work. You understand? I was talking to a young man who came and helped me work on my sprinkler system the other day in my house and this young man doesn't have all the truth. But I want to tell you something. This young man was on fire. He talked to me about God all day long. I say all day from about 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock. Talk to me about God. Talk to, about, talk to me about His revelation of giving to God. He said I only had $400 and God told me to give $200 of it. My wife got mad at me. He said and I got mad too when God told me to do it. But I did it anyway. And He said God just started blessing my life. And then later on He said God told me to give $1,000 in the offering to a ministry. And, and I went to my wife then and my wife said, do whatever the Lord tells you. <laughs> you know? Praise the Lord, church. But he was talking to me about the, the, you know, he's been, he's traveled and done some mission work. He's just a young man. He's 20, early 20s. Has a heart and a passion. He's a fire for God. He's telling me about where he wants to go in mission, you know. Be a, uh, to mission this part of the world and this part of the world. And he was telling me that they had traveled to a certain place where they, they're involved in a false religion of Islam, the Muslim faith. And he said what they teach is, the missionary told him, they teach that by your good works you climb one ladder, on, one rung on the ladder, you climb another rung on the ladder, you get a little bit closer to heaven, but as soon as you do something wrong, you got to get off the ladder and start all over again. That means you never make it to heaven. No matter how high you get, when you do one thing wrong, you got to get off the ladder. Okay? Well, you see, they believe in judgment. They believe in the need for God. They, need, they believe in heaven or hell, but they just go about it the wrong way. Amen. I thank God for the salvation Jesus Christ offers us. But we got to talking about it, you know. Because when I, when I witness, I don't, I don't witness like this is what my church believes. I don't witness like that. I don't witness like, well, I'm a Pentecostal. Or I, I don't witness like that. Okay? I started talking to him about getting, you know, I said, you know, I got filled with the Holy Ghost when I was 18 years old. I got filled with the Holy Ghost speaking with other tongues. I got water baptized in Jesus' name, had my sins remitted. And that opened the door. You could just see the man, young man, just hungry. I got to witness to him about it. Hey, he said, I said, you know, the book of Acts talks about this. It says the first step is repentance. I said, you've done that. I said, but when you look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, you have to say, okay, I've done the first step, repentance, but I've got one out of three. The next one says, repent, or repent first, then be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. If you do that, you got two out of three.
And then that said, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And you got three out of three. And I said, when I first found this truth out, I had one out of three. I had repented like you. But I needed the other two. And I said, I experienced it. He's looking at me. And I got to witness to him about the full New Testament plan of salvation. I said, hey, when he was leaving, I said, I got a swimming pool back here. You want to get baptized? Amen. He said, well, he said, where I go to church, he said, we use a trough, a, a, a watering trough. I said, I can relate. That's what we did for years when we first started the church on Brazos. We baptized people in a horse trough. Amen. You understand what I'm saying? But this young man was walking in all the revelation of God that he had. On fire too. And when he was talking to me, I'll be honest with you. You know, I got a chance to witness him about what he can experience in God. But when he was talking to me, he was talking to me. I sat there with tears running down my face. A young 20-year-old young man, not even have all the revelation of the truth that you and I have, but is sold out to Jesus Christ, wants to do something in the mission field. Hallelujah! So I'll, I'll call him up again. And I have a little problem with my sprinkler system. I'll call him up again. And we'll talk some more. Amen. Say praise the Lord. We'll, we'll put a little bait on the hook. Hallelujah. But he's a, he, I just like that guy. I like that guy. Hallelujah. Just honest. You know. Praise the Lord. But, the, but like I say, what he was telling me about the false religion of the world. Muslims, they believe, they know they need God. They're trying to climb the ladder to get there. When you witness, just, just be very wise. Don't let them ever think you're coming from a denominational system mindset. Share with them what you've experienced. Tell them what's in the Bible. It doesn't matter what you call yourself, the label of your church is. That doesn't make, that doesn't mean anything. And then, then, you know what I'm saying? Oh, you received that? Yeah. Really? You know. This is as big as... I thank God for, for people like that. In his early 20s. Hallelujah. Y'all come to church, I preach to y'all, and I'm going... Maybe I do better in soul winning than I do in preaching. I don't know pastoring, but his eyes are like. Amen. It's corrupted, those nations. But it shows you that man inwardly knew his need. He knew he deserved judgment. He knows he needs atonement, relation, reconciliation with God. Just going about it the wrong way. Abraham was going about it the wrong way. He worshipped the moon god in Ur of the Chaldees. He worshipped, if you can understand this, he worshipped Allah, a false demon. It, it grieves me to even use, speak the name in this sanctuary. He worshipped a demon. There is no God but Jesus Christ. And he didn't have a revelation of the God of glory. 
But the God of glory appeared to Abraham and the earth of the Chaldees, the land of idols. And he got a revelation of the one God of the Bible. He separated himself from his family, separated himself from the world, and went where God told him to. Beautiful, isn't it? And so God, in order to deal with the corruption in the, the nations of the world, um, that their, their redemptive understanding wasn't correct, He chose Abraham. And from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, entered into covenants with them and showed them by types and shadows, by the Passover lamb, types and shadows of the tabernacle, types and shadows of the offerings that were brought to the tabernacle, types and shadows through the priesthood, types and shadows through all the pieces of the furniture, all these types and shadows pointed to Jesus Christ. How to be right with a holy God. Showing him, showing the nation, showing you and I through those types and shadows that He is holy and judgment has to come upon sin, so bring the sacrifice. Priesthood, a mediator between God and man. You understand? A man that would come, bring us back to God. All laid out before us in types and shadows. Foreshadowed in the earth what He would do when He came. Say praise the Lord. The law gave us the types and shadows. The prophets foretold Christ prophetically. Galatians 3.24, it says it's a schoolmaster. Now, for, for you, I am really, I'm just condensing. For you, I'm condensing. Because there's a lot more that could be said on these things. But we're, pre we're teaching on the foreshadowing of the atonement in the Old Testament. In the law, the covenants with the fathers, foreshadowed in types and shadows, and then in the prophets foretold. Galatians 3.24 Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, our pedagogos, 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 our schoolmaster. Amen. And that schoolmaster was to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. So God set up through the nation of Israel, His chosen nation. Abraham is the father of that nation. He set up a total system of worship that foreshadowed what He would do when He would come in the form of man and die for us on the cross. Does that make sense? So that that Old Testament law was a schoolmaster. It took us to... You understand? It took us to school. It, it was... Gave us, gave us basic understanding of what was going to come. The law wasn't the fulfillment of it. The law was to foreshadow it. And it, what did it do? It simply pointed us as a schoolmaster to Christ. Amen. Do you understand that? The law and the types and the shadows, the grandfather clause of all spiritual reality and redemption was laid out by God in picture form so that when He comes into the world go back and look at all the pictures of the Old Testament and when you look at those pictures look at that grandfather clause of all spiritual reality then you will see what that cross means for us.
See, God is so wonderful that He took time to give us little pictures like little school kids in a schoolhouse about what He would do when He came to save us. So you and I would understand. And we've preached the tabernacle to you. We've gone through the furniture pieces. We've gone through the materials. We've gone through the, you know, the tools. And I love the tabernacle because it is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ and a type of His church. We learned so much about Him and about what He did for us. So as a schoolmaster, it was the what? To lead us to Christ. Amen. Atonement then is Jesus' death to save us. Right? It's important. We don't follow Jesus because we think He's a good leader. He is a good leader. But that's not why we follow Him. See, a lot of people follow leaders because they're good leaders. That's not why we follow Jesus. He didn't come into this world to be a good leader for us to follow. He came in this world to save us by His death. That's the reason why He was born. He was born to die. That's why He came. God in flesh was to do the work of God. The work of the Father. Not just to be a good leader or a good example, but to die for us on the cross. Some people look at His death in different ways and their wrong views. I'm going to give you some wrong views about the death of Jesus. Number one, one wrong view is they people say he just died as it was an accident. And what a shame, they say. So sad that such a good man like Jesus died. It was an accident. No, it wasn't an accident. Others teach that he was just a martyr. No, he was he wasn't just a martyr. A martyr dies for what they believe in. Jesus didn't just die for what He believed in. Does that make sense? He died to save you and me from my sin. Some teach that He was an example of suffering. That's all His death on the cross was. So we could look at Him and say, look, what a great example of suffering. So that would be, that teaching would teach that all his death is is just influence. Just get inspired when you look at Jesus dying on the cross. He didn't die just for influence to teach you how to suffer. Some teach he died for governmental purposes, and that means simply this. Are you all with me here? That when he died, all he was was an example to everybody else about how much God hates sin. No, He wasn't just an example of God to us showing us how, God, how much God hates sin. It's much more than that. You with me? And that purpose then to be an example of, of God's hatred for sin as they say is to Cause man to respect God's law. It was more than that. Some teach that he died on the cross to purchase our souls from the devil. That's false doctrine. Jesus didn't pay the devil with his death. That's not why he died. 
well, I've got to pay the devil. The devil has the people in bondage, you know, and they're in captivity, so I'm going to die so I can pay the devil. He never paid the devil anything. That's false doctrine. Everybody with me? Some say God's law and justice demanded. Well, no, the Bible says God's law and justice demanded a ransom, and that's why He came. Y'all believe that? Yes. Okay, and that's true. Another view, false view, radification. Radication. Oh, okay, so he came and he died, overcomes the sin nature. That doctrine teaches that Jesus had a sin nature and that he lived in such a way that he could restrain his sin nature. He overcome the sin nature that was in him and that's the reason why he came and that's the reason why he dies is to simply do away with the sin nature. He never had a sin nature. It's false doctrine. Okay, so anyway, you got it. Why did he die? First Corinthians 15, 3-4, the Bible says he died for our sins. Isaiah 53, 5-8, he is a sin offering. That's why he came. He didn't come. He didn't die as an, by an accident, as an accident. He didn't die as a martyr. He didn't die uh, as an example for suffering or in, as an influence. He didn't die just to be an example of God's hatred for sin so man would respect God's law. Amen. He didn't die to purchase souls from Satan. He did not have a sin nature and restrain the sin nature. Uh, he died for our sin. He's a sin offering. It was essential to salvation, John three fourteen through 15, and it even affected the spirit world as well. He said, now is the prince of this world judged. Now is he cast out. Calvary affected the spirit world as well. Okay? Praise the Lord. Crucifixion is what man did to him. Atonement is what God did in him. And when we look at the atonement, Jesus dying for us, shedding his blood so we could be reconciled to God, we always need to remember that it's not just his death that saves us. Because if he doesn't rise from the dead, we're still in our sins. So his death and his resurrection must be preached and must be believed in order for us to be saved. Does that make sense? Okay? So the Bible teaches, when you look at when Jesus talked about dying on the cross for our sin, He never talked about dying without also mentioning His resurrection. You have to have both. His death saves you, and His life saves you. Okay? You must believe that. Now, He rose the third day bodily. Say bodily. I'm going to move quicker now. Now, praise the Lord. Jesus is hanging on the cross, but before we go into the resurrection, we need to ask this question. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, He dies physically. They take His body and they put it in the grave. We know where His body is in the three days and three nights while He's in the grave before He rises from the dead, but where is His spirit? Where's His soul? in those three days and three nights while his body's in the grave. Okay? Well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Can you all handle this if I go a little bit longer? Okay. Ephesians 
chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. It says, Wherefore he said, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? That happened when he was on the cross, by the way, not while he was in the grave. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Okay, y'all with me here? All right. So, some take these verses to, to teach that Jesus descended into Hades or hell during those three days and three nights while his body was in the grave. Okay? Well, that is incorrect. Jesus' soul or spirit was not in hell during the three days and three nights his body was in the grave. I'll, I'll explain that to you in just a moment. Let's go to 1 Peter. Chapter 3. So before we move to the resurrection, I need to explain to you where his spirit was. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might <coughs> bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited when? In the days of Noah. While the ark was a preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. Now, some teach this happened when Jesus, his body was in the grave, that for three days and three nights he went into Hades and he preached to those people in prison in Hades. That's where he was. His spirit was. That's what they say. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that the spirit of Christ preached to those that are in, they're in prison now. But when did the spirit of Christ preach to them? In the days of Noah. You with me? So the spirit of Christ preached through Noah to those people in his day. They died and they are the ones that are in prison. It doesn't say that when Jesus was, his spirit, when he died, his spirit went down into hell and he preached three days and three nights to those people in prison. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says his spirit preached through, to, through Noah to his generation. They died and now they're the prison. They are the ones that are in prison. Does that make sense? Okay. So if Jesus then, when he died, three days and three nights in the, uh, the heart of the earth, his body, then where did his spirit go if he didn't go down into hell and preach to him? Where was his spirit? Have any idea? Well, first of all, when he's hanging on the cross, he said, into thy hands, he's, as a man praying, I commend my spirit. So when he died... They took his body, put it in the grave, but his spirit didn't go to hell. His spirit went to God. His human spirit went to God. Alright? 
His human spirit went to God and when he went to God, remember, while he's hanging on the cross, he said to the thief on the cross that repented, he said, today you'll be with me where? Paradise. He didn't say today you're going to be with me in Hades. Today you will be with me in paradise. So when he died, his spirit went to God. The, the repentant thief went with him to God. And Ephesians chapter 4 says he led captivity captive. That means he captured captivity. When he died, he, he into thy hands I commend my spirit. His spirit went to be with God today to the repentant thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He took the thief with him. And also Old Testament saints' spirits that were in the underworld, in the paradise section, he took the righteous Old Testament saints that were in the underworld in the paradise section out, their spirits. He took them out. When he went to, when his spirit went to God, when he gave it up, he took the repentant thief spirit with him. He also took all the Old Testament saints spirits with him at the same time. Okay? So when did those spirits of the Old Testament saints come out of Abraham's bosom? When did the thief appear with Jesus in paradise? This day. The day he died. So if I look at the scripture correctly, I know that he went, he didn't go to hell, he didn't preach in hell for three days. He went to God, His Spirit went to God, human spirit. He took the repentant thief spirit with Him and He took all the Old Testament saints with Him either at the beginning of His death when His Spirit separated from His body or at the end of His death right before He rose from the dead physically. But those Old Testament saints spirits and the repentant thief spirit are you with me? Went with Jesus either at the moment He died or at some point right before His resurrection, bodily resurrection. Okay, with me. After He does that, after He takes the repentant thief Himself, His Spirit, and the repentant thief into the presence of God and Old Testament saints, then, by the power of the Holy Ghost, His Spirit comes back and enters into that body in the grave by the power of the Holy Ghost, His human spirit enters back into that body and He rises from the dead physically, bodily on the third day. So I'm just explaining to you by the Bible where Jesus' spirit was when His body was in the tomb. Okay? Paradise is the third heaven, by the way. Okay. To the thief, he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 39-43. Um, paradise is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1-4. through That third heaven. Luke 23, 46. He said, In thy hands I commend my spirit. John 17, 11, and 13. He said, I'm going to the Father. He didn't say he was going to Hades. Ephesians 4, 8-10. through Taking the repentant thief and Old Testament saint spirits with him. Alright? A host of captives. Ephesians 4 and then Psalm 24. At the close of the three days and nights, He returned to the earth by the power of the Holy Ghost. He re-entered into His incorruptible body. He rose again. 
He was seen in his resurrection body after taking captivity captive. Amen. You with me? And then the Bible says he gave gifts to men. That's salvation. That's the gifts of the Spirit. So on and so forth. But you've heard me preach this before. Now, why am I going over that? Because some people preach that when Jesus was dying on the cross, or after he died on the cross, that he went down into hell and preached to the people in hell. Okay? And after he got through preaching to them in hell, then he took them, took them to heaven with him. When he, okay? No. I proved to you that's not what happened. He went to be with God. He took the repentant thief that day with him. His spirit with him. He took the Old Testament saints, I believe, that day with him. Okay? They moved, if you will. They, they relocated from the underworld. Old Testament righteous dead in Abraham's bosom. They relocated into the third heaven. Here, now, paradise is in the third heaven. It's now where the souls of the righteous dead are since Christ's resurrection. Okay? So now you know the truth. He rose again bodily. And when He rose again bodily, the Bible says that even some of the saints that were in the graves rose bodily. The graves opened up at His death, but they rose from the dead bodily at His resurrection. So that means that even some of the Old Testament righteous dead, their spirits were allowed to, to move back into their body by the power of the Spirit as a testimony and manifestation of the power of God in resurrection. Amen. So you talk about the resurrection. The resurrection deals with the body. But what I just shared with you is what happened to the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the, the thief, and the Spirit of Old Testament righteous dead uh, while His body was in the grave. Okay? Amen. God's good. But as I said, He always preached His resurrection when He preached His death. Acts 26 and verse 8, Romans 4.25. Are you all alright? <laughs> we are saved by His death and His life. 1 Corinthians 15.16-20. We needed both. Okay? Go on down real fast. Alright? They took Jesus and they put Him in the grave, put His body in the grave, His spirit went to be with God, along with the repentant thief and Old Testament righteous dead, their spirits. Now, but the Bible says the grave could not hold Him. Death could not hold Him. Why couldn't the grave hold Him? Because He's holy. He was raised... His body was raised. His spirit came back into that body. And His body was incorruptible. It never started decaying. He's the only one, just the only one they ever put in the grave whose body never stopped decaying. When, they put, when you die and I die, my body starts instantly decaying. His body never saw corruption. Somehow God, after they had mangled His body on the cross, somehow God kept it from corrupting. By His power, of course. The Spirit comes back in Him. He rises from the dead because death could not hold Him. He was holy because of who, listen, because of who He is and what He did, the grave could not hold Jesus. It's powerful. 
And that resurrection proved that he was not an imposter. That resurrection proved that what he said about himself was true, that he was the Christ of God, that he was God come of flesh, that he was not a liar, that he was not an imposter, that he was not a lunatic, that what he said was true and God vindicated his son by raising him from the dead. That he wasn't a criminal deserving death. He died in our place. He rose from the dead. He appeared 11 times. Let me give it to you real quick. You preachers need this. You need to write it down. I know some of you, you're, you're so, you just, I don't know, you need help. You need to get some sleep at night, man. You don't even have enough strength to write anything down. But I promise you, if you're a preacher, you're going to need what I'm about to tell you. Okay? So he appeared to them 11 times. I'm going to go real quick. I'm going to give you those. Okay? Now remember the book of Acts, we preached on that, that he appeared 11 times. 10 is divine, what? Divine order. Number 12 is the what? Divine government. 10 is divine order. The law. 12 is divine government. He appeared 11 times, one short of divine government. He appeared in, in between. In an in-between place. Okay? You with me? And, and so, we explained to you what he was doing there. He was playing peekaboo with his disciples. So I'm going to appear 11 times, you know, and I'm going to let you see me, and I'm going to disappear, and I'm going to reappear, let you see me again, like a mom plays with her little baby. The little baby's in the crib. She walks around and says, hey. The little baby says, hey, there's mom. And then she disappears. And the reason why she does that, why she plays peekaboo with her little baby is so that when the baby, you know, when she's not there visibly, the baby knows mama's here somewhere. So Jesus played peekaboo with the disciples. He appeared to them back and forth, all right? You with me? So that when he did finally ascend up to be on the right hand of God, they would always know, I don't see him, but I know he's here. All right? He appeared 11 times. Let me give them to you. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, Mark 16, 9. He appeared to the other women who told the disciples, Mark 16, 1 through 3. He appeared to Peter, Mark 16, 7. He appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. Mark 16, 12 through 13. He appeared to ten disciples. Luke 24, 33. He appeared to eleven disciples. Thomas with them. John 20, 25 through 28. He appeared to seven. The Sea of Galilee. John 21, 1 through 24. He appeared to the eleven at... Mount of Galilee, Matthew 28, 16-17. He appeared to 500 brethren at one time, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. He appeared to James, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. He appeared to disciples at Bethany, or the Mount of Olives, Acts 1, 3-5. So he appeared 11 times. Okay? Now, there's one possibility and if this is true, then what I preached in the book of Acts about him appearing 11 times in between divine government or divine order and divine government, then we'll have to set that aside. But the Bible tells us very clearly he appeared 11 times. And I just gave those to you. It is possible that he appeared 12 times if the two angels that were sitting in the sepulcher saw him 
on the day of His resurrection, then you have 12 times that Jesus appeared. If they did not see Him and just testify that He was risen, then you have Him appearing 11 times. That didn't cost you anything. All you had to do is just write it down. I'll remember it. No, you're just as bad as I am. I don't write something down. I go, what was that? An hour later. Okay, so what we have then, we have witnesses. On 11 different occasions, witnesses, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily. They handled Him. Amen. They saw Him with their eyes. They handled Him with their hands at His resurrection. Praise God. Not just a spirit, but bodily risen from the dead. Hallelujah. Amen. 500 men, 500 people at one time saw Him. Proof of the resurrection. We have... Post-ascension. Those are post-resurrection appearances. We have post-ascension appearances of Jesus to people. Jesus appeared to Stephen. He appeared to Paul. And He appeared to John. After He ascended, He appeared to them. Proof that He's risen from the dead. In Acts chapter 1, the Bible says, um, let me turn there because I want to get the wording right. Y'all are a good church this morning. You're getting the Word of God in you. In you. Acts 1, verse 3, To whom also He showed Himself alive after His passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, say many infallible proofs, eyewitnesses of his resurrection, and then many infallible proofs. So let me go real fast. Okay? Infallible proof. Number one, the empty tomb. That's an infallible proof. When they went there, even his enemies could walk into that tomb and see he wasn't there. And if, as some claimed, lied, that the disciples came and stole his body away, well, what did they do with his body? Did they rebury it somewhere? What did they do with his body if they did steal it? And they didn't. We know they didn't. What would they do with it? Where would they take it? If he didn't rise again from the dead and they stole his body away and took it somewhere, don't you think that the Roman government would have turned the world upside down to find that body? Yeah. The empty tomb is an infallible proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, I want you to think about what I'm saying. It's not easy to get rid of a dead body. You ever tried to carry Thurman? Pick him up, put him... Man, it'd be even hard to drag him. You gotta put him in your car. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's hard to, to, to handle a human body that's dead. Praise God. And not only that, but if you take the body, you steal the body, you're gonna, you're gonna probably leave the clothes on the body. The clothes of Jesus stayed in the grave. <laughs> 
What'd they do? Undress his body and then take his body out? No. The empty tomb is a proof, an infallible proof that Jesus rose from the dead. It's empty. He's not in there. Hallelujah. I've got a question for y'all. How many of y'all watched Dallas play that preseason game? I watched just a few minutes of it. Three hours. Okay, how long have we been in church? About two hours? All right. Many infallible proofs. Empty. Well, I don't like football. Well, that's your problem, not mine. I like football. That's your problem, not mine. But I'm just telling you, it's not that bad. Empty tomb. Roman seal. They put a Roman seal. Alright? They, I don't know exactly, exactly, exactly how they do it. But if I understand it correctly, they put like clay on one side and clay on the other and put a seal across it, stamped it, okay? With the Roman emperor's insignia. You break that seal. You break it with the penalty of death on you. Because when they put that seal, when a Roman government put its seal on anything, that government said, this is the Roman government's property. It belongs to Rome. They sealed that tomb and an angel went by and broke the seal. No disciple broke the seal. The angel broke the seal. You don't do that. to a Roman seal. The seal was broken. Infallible proof. Real fast. The stone was rolled away. Even his, the, the women, the disciples, the women that followed him said, how can we roll the stone away? The stone was rolled away. Proof. I mean, they kicked the stone out and it was, it was sloped like this and the stone, once you kick the stone out, could roll by itself in front of the sepulcher. But how are you going to roll it uphill? The angels of the Lord rolled it uphill. Not so Jesus could get out, but so that the disciples could get in. Proof He's risen from the dead. The stone was rolled away. Surprised, the guard was surprised. They bribed the guard. Say his disciples. Say that you went to sleep and say his disciples came and stole the body away. Well, if you were asleep, how did you know they stole the body away? If you're a Roman guard, you're not going to say that you went to sleep while you were on guard because they'll put you to death if you do that. But they paid them money to say that while they were asleep, the disciples stole his body away. No, those guards knew because they, they, they experienced the earthquake. They, they saw the stone roll back. But surprise guard is proof. They knew he rose from the dead. They kept it on the inside though. Empty grave clothes is proof that he rose from the dead. Those grave clothes were like a hard cocoon. They wrapped them in strips and put alloys and spices and it, it, 
literally like an encasement around the body. And when they went in there and they saw the empty tomb, they saw his grave clothes there, a big cocoon where his body was. He went right through the, the, those grave clothes. Left him there as a sign that he was risen from the dead. As Luke says in the gospel, in the book of Acts, infallible proofs. With his, with his cloth that wrapped around his head, the talit, over there nice and neatly folded up. Somebody took time to fold this head cover up and put it over to the side. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, think about that. What does that mean? Well, in that culture, if you get through eating, you fold your napkin up. No, no, no. If you're not through eating, say you got to go to the restroom, and you're not through eating, you fold the napkin up, you lay it to the side so the waiter knows you're coming back if it's neatly folded up. If you're done eating, you throw the napkin on the table and you just leave. Jesus said, I'm going to take time to fold up the napkin. I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. Many infallible proofs. I know y'all are, some of y'all are so religious, you can't even crack a smile. God bless your little heart. Transformed disciples. You got a bunch of cowards. Run, run off, denied him, hiding, you know, everywhere, praise God, in a little room, hiding out. Cowards, afraid of their own little, on their own shadow, you know, just cowards. And then all of a sudden Jesus appears to them and they're transformed by the power that he's alive. And those coward disciples are the ones that boldly proclaim that Jesus died and rose again the third day throughout the book of Acts. They could, they could threaten them with persecution. They could threaten them with death. They still preach because Jesus is alive. Transformed disciples prove in many infallible proofs. The church is an infallible proof that Jesus rose from the dead. How many of y'all believe that today? The church is founded on that truth. It's founded on His atonement, His death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. It's our foundation, church. We're the only thing in the world, only religion in the world, that our foundation is on a living man. The other, other religions of the world today are built on dead men. But the one we believe in is a living man. And it's the foundation of the church. Man, I tell you, I feel him right now too. The Lord's Day. The fact that we even meet and have church is proof that Jesus is risen from the dead. Hallelujah. I can look at you as the church. I can see transformed lives. That tells me he's alive. You couldn't change yourself if you tried. You went to Alcoholics Anonymous, stayed an alcoholic. You, you, you bought the nicotine patches and still kept smoking through the nicotine patches. You know what I'm telling. It's true. You wanted to quit and you'd break the things off in your arms. 
Oh, look at that. Hmm. Pull the needle out of your arm. Stick another one in. Addictions. Bam! Drugs and all kinds of things that were in our life. You've been changed. That's proof that He's alive. And I thank God for that because I don't know what in the world I'd do with any of you if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ living in you. Hallelujah. Now I got it together so I'm not worried about myself. But I don't know what I'd do with you if you didn't have Jesus Christ living inside of you. I'd probably already lost my mind. Amen. About to lose it with Jesus in you. <laughs> but we're gathered here together, various backgrounds, even different ethnic backgrounds, and so on and so forth. But we're gathered together into one body, loving each other, caring for each other, praying for each other, changed by the power of God. We're not, this is not a religion. Here, this church is not a religion. It's not a denomination. You are the body of Christ. And I see Him. I see the living Lord Jesus Christ manifesting Himself in this church in and through you. I see Him in you. Proof that He's alive today. Many infallible proofs, Luke said. If you can't get excited about that, you better check your salvation. Hallelujah. New Testament books. Of the, the, the books of the New Testament Bible. How many? Sister Sonny's in the 27? Last time I checked, 3 times 9, 27? 27, yeah. 3. Hallelujah. 3 times 9, 27. Mm-hmm. 27 New Testament books. You wouldn't have the New Testament Bible today if, it were, if Jesus Christ wasn't alive. Are y'all here today? Those apostles preached it. They testified it. He lives. Now, one thing you need to know that only believers saw Him after He rose from the dead. The last time the world ever saw Jesus Christ was when He was hanging on the cross dead. When He rose again from the dead, no sinner ever laid their hands on Him ever again. The sinner took Him and they crucified Him. But when He rose from the dead, no sinner ever put their hands on Him. He was only seen by the believers, not by the unbeliever. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Lord. He's got a resurrection body. He rose from the dead. Resurrection body. Hallelujah. Resurrected. Say, resurrection body. But it still had the nail prints in the hands. Open side. You still see them. Resurrection body. Not a glorified body. If he had came out of the grave with a, with a glorified body, he'd have melted everything. The Bible says when he comes back the second time, the mountains in the prophet Isaiah, the mountains are going to melt in his presence. Lest your eyes were strengthened by the power of God to see him in his glorified body, you would melt. When he came out of the grave, he came out of the grave with a resurrected body. When he ascended to sit on the right hand of God, that's he became glorified. 
And when He comes back, He's not just coming back in a resurrected body. He's coming back in a glorified body that's going to be brighter than the noonday sun. It'll melt mountains. That's the kind of body He came out with was a resurrection body. He's now glorified, the glorified Son of God. Not only did He rise, but He ascended. Uh, he went back to heaven. To ascend means to go back to the Father. Luke 24, 50-53. He was not translated. He ascended. Translation means you have to have help to get up there. Enoch was translated. Amen? Moses was translated. Jesus was not translated. Jesus ascended. That means He went up in His own right and His own power. No man ever went up in His own right and His own power. If He went up, it's because God's power carried Him up. When Jesus went up, they never saw they never saw a man that high. When they saw Him in that cloud, they never saw a man that high. That was their King. That was their King personified in that cloud that received them out. Him out of their sight. Ascension means you go up in your own power. Translation is when you go up in the power by the power of God. It was prophesied He would. He's now glorified. Speaks of brightness. 1 Peter 1, 10-12. And when He got there, He experienced His exaltation. That means His enthronement. When He got into heaven, He sat on the throne being God. He's on the throne right now as God. Setting on that throne. Say, setting on the throne. That means He is in His session. He's in His session. You ever been in court before? Don't lift your hand. The judge comes in. I guess the bailiff says, All rise. The court is now in what? Session. The judge sets down. It's time for him to do his job. It's time for him to officiate. It's time to him for him to sit and administrate. And so when Jesus rose and ascended, now he's enthroned. He's now in his session. The court is in session. He is doing his work in relationship to us as believers and in relationship to the world. He is officially presiding and ministering in the heavens right now. It's called the session. The session will end when He comes back to the earth in His second coming. By the way, that's also a part of the atonement, His second coming. You with me? So in His session, He is seated as a prophet. He brings knowledge of God to us. He's seated as priest. He's a mediator between God and man. He is a king, a seated king. He reigns in authority. He is a seated judge. He is our deliverer. Not only has he been enthroned, exalted in enthronement, but he's exalted in name. Okay, Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says that he has a name which is above every name. Amen? What is that? Well, his name was Jesus. He was Lord as God always. But when he rose from the dead as a resurrected man, God gave him even his name, Lord. Did you hear what I said? He's Christ Jesus the Lord. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not only Lord as God, but God gave Him by way of inheritance the name, your Lord. Powerful. 
So that there will come a time when He'll be recognized as God all and all. The role of the sonship will come to an end when, it, when He's completed His work. That's powerful. So that even as a man, God gave Him His name, Lord. He was Lord even before He died. Somebody's getting a text. <laughs> the new covenant points, uh, all the covenants point to the new covenant, um, points to the other covenants, new covenants, blood covenant. Jesus established before he died on the cross. We're in that covenant now. Amen. Crucifixion in, uh, emphasizes the man. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I've already teach, taught you that. I'm trying to move fast. Leviticus 17, verse 11, it's the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. You understand that? Life, the flesh, sin, the blood. It's the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. But I want you to see something very carefully as I come to a close. Is that God was so careful in the Old Testament. You look at Leviticus verses, chapters 1 through 7, you'll see how careful God was. He told them exactly what to do with the bodies of the animals. He told them exactly what to do with the blood of the animals. He gave them specific, very detailed plans if he cared that much about animal bodies and animal blood how much more did he care about the body and blood of Jesus Christ say amen we need to be we need to be very thankful and we need to reverence the body and blood of Jesus Christ so in the new testament the old testament gave the the sacrifices as a type the new testament we have the lord's supper Amen. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we do show forth the Lord's death till He comes. Application to our lives. Every day I live, I apply that truth. He died for me. He rose again the third day. He shed His blood for me. I remember that. So every day I present my body a living sacrifice. Let me say it to you this way so you'll understand. Because of His sacrifice, I present my body a living sacrifice. There's one sacrifice yet to be made. And it's not you paying for your sin. He did that by His sacrifice. But the one sacrifice that is still needing to be made is you and I. Presenting our bodies a living sacrifice unto God so that every day of my life, as I sacrifice my life because of what He did for me, I'm applying the truths that are connected to His body and to His blood. Okay? The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is also connected to the atonement. It is the consummation of what He began uh, in His first coming. Okay? Say praise the Lord. I think that is all I want to cover this morning. You have been such a blessing. I pray that the teaching has been a blessing to you as well. Let's stand. Father God, we come before you right now. We thank you for the atonement. We thank you, Lord God, for reconciling us, Lord Jesus, to yourself by your death on the cross. We love you. We can never repay, Lord, you for what you've done for us. But Lord, as we live daily, let us present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you, which is our reasonable service. Remembering your sacrifice for us. 
And we give you all praise and glory today. You're alive. And you live inside of us and inside of this church and the church, your church body around the world. Lord, we pray for those that are persecuted, those that are giving their life for their faith in you. Lord God, we ask that you would help them, you would strengthen them in difficult times of persecution. Lord, as we sit here today in this church comfortable without that threat upon us, Father, let their faith, endurance, be a testimony to all of us. Lord Jesus, that you must be number one in our life. All we can do today, Lord, is by our lives show that we love you and say that we love you. We love you back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. So you understand the, the atonement now uh, better than you did before. God bless you. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord.